And now, Dan Happel's Connecting the Dots. If tomorrow all the things were gone, I'd work for all my life. And I had to start again with just my children and my wife. I thank my lucky stars to be living here today. Where the flag still stands for freedom and they can't take that away. The men who died, who gave that right to me, and I gladly stand up next to you and defend her still today. Cause there ain't no doubt I love this land. God bless the USA. God bless the USA. Well, good Sunday afternoon. Welcome to Connecting the Dots with Dan Happel. Thumper, it looks like we've got some technical issues today. Uh, I hope my internet holds up as well because I've been having a lot of problems uh, with my internet down here in the Tucson area. But anyway, we are going to have a fantastic program. I have two very special ladies as guests today. Uh, Dr. Rima Lebo is a uh, medical doctor. She has a uh, organization called the Natural Solutions Foundation. She is a homeopathic doctor of the highest order. She believes in the human body uh, having the ability to heal itself. She is very outspoken about the World Health Organization and what's been happening with the jabs. We're going to be talking about that. She has a group that I actually sat in on one of the meetings uh, a week ago called PreventGenocide2030.org, and she's talking to people all over the world about the plans of the World Health Organization and the UN and the globalists to basically take down over 90% of the world population. And of course, uh, our one of my wonderful friends and all-time favorite to the show, uh, Juliet Engel. She is a medical doctor as well. And uh, Juliet was a pediatrician, I guess is. I, it's kind of like being a Marine, you never quit. Uh, but uh, also she has uh, a, an amazing background as a survivor of the MK Ultra sex magic program that her parents who were uh, CIA put her in when she was only six years old. Uh, ladies, I want to welcome you to the program. Frankly, I just felt like you were two ladies that really need to meet one another and get a chance to work together because the best way we can connect dots in this world right now is to bring people together, get people working together. We have a common enemy, and uh, I have to tell you, it's not us. <laughs> 
the common enemy that we have is the New World Order, and certainly right in the center of that is the UN and the World Health Organization. I'll start, uh, Dr. Lima, uh, Dr. Rima, I will uh, start with you. Uh, thank you for being our guest. I had the uh, opportunity to have brunch with you yesterday, and we had a tremendous opportunity to uh, visit. And I, I have to tell you, I've been a fan of yours for probably 20 plus years because I did see you on Alex Jones, you and uh, General Stubblebine on uh, Alex Jones probably 20 years ago. And so I, I know you've been in this fight like I have for a long time. Thank you for being our guest. Welcome to the program. Thank you so much. I am absolutely delighted to be here to talk with you, Dan, and to meet uh, Dr. Juliet. I can't wait. Um, yeah, I've been in this fight for a long time because it's been obvious to me for a long time that we were under attack in terms of our very humanity, as well as our absolute existence. So when I um, when I understood that, when my husband understood that, we felt we had no choice but to become actively engaged in reversing the outcome, which as far as the bad guys are concerned, and they're very, very bad, is um, population reduction to a staggering extent, as you mentioned, and enslavement from the DNA outward of everybody who's allowed to survive, to which my answer is no, uh-uh, not happening. Well, I know it's a, a major, major concern of yours, and the organization that you have prevents uh, genocide 2030. I did set in on the meeting, and you've got people from literally all over the world uh, that are working with you on that, and I think that's such an important part of what we're trying to do is networking and getting people to work together. If we don't, if we don't raise a common voice, now we don't need a central command system because centralized control always results in tyranny, whether it's ego driven or controlled opposition penetrated or what. We don't need a central command and control system. What we need is lots of people saying the same thing, which is get me out of the WHO, get me out of the United Nations. And it turns out that's actually pretty simple to do. What's hard is getting the head of state of your country to write the simple letter that's required. But that's what political will can do to demand that our countries leave these death organizations. Absolutely. Well, um, uh, our other guest, uh, Dr. Julian Engel, is um, a very special friend, has been on this program a bunch of times, but uh, Juliet uh, is an absolutely amazing lady. She uh, has quite a story to tell herself, and I'd like to have uh, the opportunity for her to introduce herself to you, because I know you guys would become fast friends if you knew each other. Juliet, welcome to the program. Thank you. I'm glad to be here, and I'm thrilled to be meeting Rima. Yeah, I followed your work for quite a while, and I agree with everything you say. I I don't. I, I I've worked quite a lot with the UN, and it's a self perpetuating bureaucracy which exists to to feed and and uh, perpetuate itself. And um, I. I've been on this program before saying that I believe that a lot of the 
crazy suicidal uh, ideology, which is being spouted by all these brainless bureaucrats, comes from the MKUltra programs where literally thousands of American children were picked out of, picked for their potential and uh, programmed. And and I can tell you from the programming that the the main mantras were, there is no light, there is no dark, there is no good, there is no evil, there is no man, there is no woman. And uh, from then on, uh, it was a genocidal agenda. It was, it was uh, we were to hate people, to destroy progress, to destroy roads. I mean, they really had a thing about roads. And, and um, so it wasn't until much later as an adult that I, I saw this playing out and it started resonating with with uh, what I was trying to remember about my childhood. It's a huge story, but the UN is is uh, pure poison and the WHO is the manifestation of that. And um, I, I don't know if you would consider, you know, I think that the, the death jabs were definitely a, a an attack on the population and an attempt at genocide. And um, and and a, so far a successful. I call it an iatro genocide, which means doctor. You know, oh, yeah. but doctor doctor induced genocide. <laughs> Absolutely, and there's no question that it was meant to um, continue the process of enhancing the vulnerability, killing off uh, large numbers of people. We we don't know how many people have died, and I, I just want to will die. And will die unless, and this is a project that I'm very deeply involved in, unless we can find a quick, easy, inexpensive, efficient way to determine what's in people, whether they were ejected or infected by the injected at shedding, um, and then a way to remove quickly, easily, efficiently from billions of people what has been put into their bodies. Because if we don't do that, the level of death that will result from what's already been done, let alone what they're planning, will make the Black Death, when only half of Eurasia died, look like a walk in the park. We have to do this. It is an essential, immediate requirement unless we are going to participate in our own uh, utter descent back to Stone Age under tyrannical terms. Mm-hmm. Yeah, under AI and uh, other people literally deciding our fate, and that's where we're at right now. Dr. Rima, you talked to me about, uh, you told me a little story, I hope you'll relay it to our, uh, to our listeners, but you talked about when you, back around 2000, uh, you were in medical practice, you were helping a number of people, and there was a very wealthy European lady that approached you. And um, I, 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 would you mind uh, relaying that conversation? I'd be happy to share it. Um, because I practice drug-free psychiatry and medicine, um, my practice morphed from psychiatry and neurology, which is what I was trained in my postgraduate years to do, to what I called cataclysmic primary care, people who had been told to go home and die, there was no hope, live with the pain, it was an incurable condition, whatever, would 
come to a doctor like me, and by the way, I'm not a homeopathic doctor. I use homeopathy, but I used many um, drug-free technologies. In my 53 years of uh, being a physician, I've never written a prescription for a pharmaceutical. So uh, that tells you that I'm a little bit uh, off the beaten track as far as the way I do things. So people would come to me because desperate people have desperate friends. And among the people who came to me were um, some of the so-called self, uh, self-congratulatory self elite. And one of them was a crowned monarch. You know, somebody who walks around with a uh, crown on her head at state dinners and stuff like that. And one day, and I was treating her for a physical thing. One day she said to me, you know, it's almost time for the great culling to begin. And I said, the what? Yes. She's, pardon me? Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Juliet. I was agreeing with you. <laughs> sorry. Yeah. And, and it's all right. No, 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 it's fine. And she said, I said, the what? She said, culling, C-U-L-L. I said, I know the word. What are you talking about? She said, the culling of the useless eaters. Now, this was in late 2002, and I had never heard the term useless eaters at that point. So I said, what's a useless eater? And she said, not what, my dear, who? Now, if we have a relationship which has endearment and affection, you can call me any pet name you like. But if you're descend- if you're being condescending to me, don't do that. She did that. Anyway, she <laughs> said, not, not what, my dear, who? I said, okay, who is the useless eater? She said, those people who are consuming our non-new renewable resources. And I said, did it ever occur to you that you're consuming their non-renewable resources? She said, oh, that's an interesting idea. Well, anyway, and she dismissed that. I said, so how many of these useless eaters are you planning on culling? And she said, 90%. And I said, 90% of what? And she said, the current world population. And I said, whoa, 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 whoa. The you are one of the wealthiest people on the planet. And you your wealth has come from selling enormous amounts of shit to huge numbers of people. If you don't have huge numbers of people to sell your enormous amounts of shit to, how are you going to maintain your wealth? And she scoffed at me. She was very good at scoffing, by the way. Maybe they teach you <laughs> scoffing in, in monarch school. Anyway, monarch being another program, by the way. Um, She said, oh, no, my dear, you don't understand. The mercantile era that began in the 14th century with the Hanseatic League in Germany is coming to an end. We are moving to the neo-feudal era. There will be us, the neo-aristocrats at the top, surrounded by our servants and servitors, and below them our technicians, and that requires only 10% of the current population of the planet. And she left, cured, by the way, but she left. And I thought, either this woman is batshit crazy, and I missed it because I was looking at a physical thing and wasn't thinking about her mental health, or she has given me an enormously, and gave me an enormous clue. So I started understanding what useless eater meant. And what I discovered was that there was indeed a very clear plot afoot, which had been well laid out, which had been well financed, which had been well emplaced over a very long time to literally do what this 
batshit crazy lady was telling me was going to happen. And as I became more and more knowledgeable about all of this stuff, by 2004, I waltzed into my husband's office, Major General Albert N. Stubblebein III, a retired, absolutely brilliant strategic analyst and a wonderful human being. And I said to him, sweetheart, we have to close the practice. And he said, really smart thing. He said, why? Because that was how we earned our living after all. I said, well, our side, the health freedom side all over the world is acting tactically. They are not thinking strategically and then acting tactically. When something happens or when they've lost a battle, they run around flapping their hands in the air saying, oh my goodness, this is terrible, this is terrible. They're always on the defensive. And we know that the best way to lose a war is to be on the defensive. So he had been learning what I was learning as I was learning it. So he was aware of what I was um, thinking about. And he said, you're right. So we closed our practice of medicine. We sold our house so we'd have some walking around money. And we created the Natural Solutions Foundation in 2004, specifically to derail the globalist agenda, because we saw that through vaccination, through injection, injunction, and indoctrination, as Bertrand Russell said, it would be impossible for the man of the future to have an independent thought. That was what Bertrand Russell, one of the Fabian socialists from around the turn of the century, the 20th century, had to say about this. And we saw that their plan was coming to fruition. And we said, we have to stop it. We have to join with others to stop it. And that's why you heard me on Alex Jones and heard the general and heard heard us on lots of other things. And so we've been, and by the way, when we started saying there is a genocidal program and the United Nations and the World Health Organization are central to it and so on, using the G word made us insane. Understand Mm. that. Oh, you're crazy. Yeah, maybe that could be, but these people are crazier and they're better organized and better financed. So pay attention. And now it's au courant. People are allowed to say, oh, there's a genocidal plot, there's depopulation and so on. These guys have been telling us what they intended to do for 140 years. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, and, and you know, we talked about H.G. Uh, Wells and uh, people who were uh, clear back in the 18, even as far back as the 1850s, people like Jules Verne, we're talking about all these technologies that were going to be used to uh, manage the the human population. And uh, I, I really want uh, Juliet to tell you a little bit about her childhood, because this fits in so perfectly with what you're talking about. First of all, MKUltra. Uh, Juliet, Tell uh, Dr. Rima a little bit about your background and your family background, and what is MKUltra? Well, first of all, I, I my life really began when I was 17, and um, I put myself through college. I left home. I put myself through college. I put myself through medical school graduated first in my class and started a medical practice and a family, and then got to the point where 
I had a daughter who looked just like me. So um, I was trying very hard to remember what my childhood was like, you know, how my parents treated me. You know, I, I needed some parenting skills here. But what I, whatever I remembered was just so horrible. I thought I was losing my mind. I thought I was going mad. And um, I went to see a psychiatrist, and he didn't know what was going on. But the question I needed to ask, this was someone I'd known in medical school. He'd been a professor of mine. I trusted him. I thought he was a real rock-solid individual. And uh, I... I had one question, and that is, am I crazy? If he'd said yes, I would have killed myself and not not even been here. But he didn't. He looked at me and he said, well, I've known you a long time. You have very poor idea of limitations and boundaries, and you're a hyperachiever, and he named all these things. And I thought, yeah, 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 true. And he goes, but you're not crazy. And he saved my life because... I then um, decided that it that it was worth the fight. Now, I, I had gone to my parents and asked them, you know, I'm having these terrible dreams. I didn't have much communication with them, but I, communica- I reached out to them and said, I, I can't live like this. I'm going to see a psychiatrist. And they replied, my father met with me. I never talked to my mother again. And my father said, well, if you see a psychiatrist, you'll never see us again. I said, if I don't see a psychiatrist, I'm going to kill myself. And he goes, well, you know, that's your choice. Literally, that's what he said. Wow. And uh, so my psychiatrist in that first session, which was going to turn into a long series of sessions, looked at me and said, okay, we'll start at the beginning. Tell me about your mother. I had no recollection of my mother at all, nothing. And uh, so he realized there was something there. And... Uh, told me to go home and make a drawing of my life. So I, I did that. And um, uh, in, um, I'll, I'll put it up a little later. I'll have to pull it out of my, out of my files. But um, it was a drawing of madness. It was complete and utter madness with all those occult symbols. And, and um, I'm reaching for the sky. I'm trying to get to God, but I'm like... Uh, only getting to magic. And um, so that was the beginning of a long stretch. He didn't know what was going on. Nobody knew what MKUltra was at the time. This would have been in the in the 1970s and early 80s, even though the church commission hearings had taken place in D.C. And they had CIA admitted to the fact that there were 150 programs, 85 institutions involved, um, hundreds and thousands of Americans that have been um, dragged into these programs. And much later, it came out that the people running the programs were actually uh, Nazi scientists from the uh, concentration camps that weren't killed at Nuremberg. They were instead imported into the United States by the thousands. And uh, at least 1,500 physicians were brought over to do these programs. Much later still, I found out that my family was very much involved in the Nuremberg trials. They were, uh, I had four uncles who were OSS agents, German speakers, interpreters, and they were in charge in many cases of resettling Nazis in the United States. And then they proceeded to get, put their children into these programs, which is how I got into the program. So um, 
And out of this, and I still don't don't have a, a clear understanding of why the Nazis were doing this, but the the idea of the genocide, the idea of the culling of the population, the useless eaters, using magic, denying God, killing spirituality, capturing souls, which is what they're trying to do at the at the Large Hadron Collider, and and uh, creating a new God. So I, I'm absolutely sure that, that that is the goal of this, of this crazy program that I was in, is to take the souls of the of the children that were in the program, were in the program, make them into zombies who are repeating all this crazy nonsense that we're hearing today. Put them in top positions in UN, WHO. Um, Nobody talks about the International Organization of Migration, but that's a huge one. That's that's the organization from the UN that's responsible for moving all these people, for displacing and moving and resettling and and mixing. And so there, there, two hundred seventy million people were moved by the International Organization of Migration last year. So, um, but these people all spout the same ideology, and the ideology comes from the MK Ultra programs. So um, I'd probably be Secretary of State or something if I hadn't broken loose, broken free, and started pushing against them and disagreeing. And But I did spend 20 years working with the UN because I was running an NGO in Russia. And uh, it doesn't take a long time to figure out that, that uh, how they operate, what they do, how they actually destroy indigenous programs on the ground, how they discourage and destroy personal initiatives, things that would really do good things. Um, so I agree with everything you said. And about 2000, the Millennium Development Goals were written by Jeffrey Sachs. I'm sure you're well, very familiar with them. Basically, those are the goals which any organization, These were this was immediately adopted by um, USAID, European Union, ECC, the whole Every funding organization on a federal level associated with the EU and the United States adopted these set of 10 goals, which are impossible. It is impossible for anyone to complete the contradictory, self-conflicting goals written in the Millennium Development Goals. Absolutely. And, uh, and I knew enough about Jeffrey Sachs to know that you know this is totally deliberate. And and uh, that's why they picked him. It's a, it's an ingenious way to entrap any startup NGO, any citizen effort really that seeks funding on the on the federal level. Which is why I totally agree with what you say that that uh, you're better off starting small local initiatives that aren't asking for funding and aren't seeking money and don't have any government control over them. Well, it, first of all, um, I am so empathetically touched by your struggle and your ability to break free of that and what you must have gone through as you were unearthing the the buried realities i mean just as a human being um uh, that's that's incredibly powerful and tragic and the the wrongness of subjecting children to this voluntarily is incomprehensibly horrendous so you know you have my my human outreach to you, Juliet. But in addition to that, as you were talking about uh, 
the programs being run by Nazi scientists. One of the pieces of research that I've been doing recently is to try to understand how every government in the world could be captured to agree to Agenda 21, as it was in 1994, and the sustainability goals, which are, of course, destruction goals. They, One of the things that people need to, to be aware of, and I, I know that, that you certainly are, is that words are shifted in their meaning. They're inverted in their meaning so that bad things are given beautiful, wonderful kind, uh, emotionally satisfying names, and good things are given bad names. And the inversion is continual. It's, it's called jargonization. And so when we talk about sustainability, the sustainability goals, well, who doesn't like sustainability? <laughs> you think of a green field and a blue sky and white fluffy clouds and cows lowing in the distance and birds singing. That's not what sustainability means. Sustainability means you live in 16 square meters for your entire life and you are in an urban concentration camp if you're allowed to survive and your DNA belongs to someone else and your neurology has been captured and every essence of your humanity has been captured or destroyed. That's what sustainability means, but they call it something that evokes a warm fuzzy and that is continually done to delude us and deflect our, our awareness. The Nazi scientists who controlled the program that tortured you and so many others were actually supported when they were in Germany by the Rockefeller uh, pathological philanthropy. Oh. And they were supported in the, they were brought to the United States after the war by the Rockefeller empires. And they were put in various places like the new school and the U.S. government and so on in order to do this horrendous work that the Rockefellers had been supporting them. And, and the Rockefellers brought in uh, the Carnegies and the Fords and so on. They brought in their, their billionaire friends and they created this program of absolute destruction, degradation and control. Specifically, what they lacked was the science. And so they made sure that the science happened by philanthropically supporting it and by making sure that government support went to what they wanted. They control mm -hmm. and the World Health Organization itself and the United Nations were created to do this work by these predatory philanthropic uh, monsters, philanthropic because they had the money, not philanthropic because they care about us. What they care is what they care about is destroying us. And you experience some of that firsthand and the migration and the trans, uh, transgender nonsense. And, and so, and by the way, I just put up a meme the other day of me smiling like Dylan Mulvaney and with my <laughs> hand up. And I said, celebrating 29,975 days as a girl. <laughs> <laughs> and we have to use we have to use that kind of communication to take these huge things down to their really ridiculous, laughable, nonsensical proportions, because otherwise it seems reasonable until you think about it, mm -hmm. until you laugh at it. And you say, you know, that's really stupid. That's mm -hmm flagrantly stupid and we have to call it out all of us if you know that your kid is being um, propagandized 
and what's being said is wrong, open your mouth. But absolutely, I have to disagree with what you said in one way. Local action is very important. The school board, uh, the the town council and so on. But unless and until every country in the world gets out of the World Health Organization and gets out of the United Nations, we have no hope of not being destroyed. It is the Death Star, the WHO and the One Health and all that nonsense is the Death Star that's coming over the horizon to destroy us, and we have to shoot it out of the sky. Mm -hmm. I, agree I agree with you completely. entirely. Yeah, you have to work at the local level the same time you work at the at the national level, but you're going to communicate at the local level. Yes. And uh, by the way, I want to give everybody the website that we have set up, preventgenocide2030.org, where you in your country can bombard the gatekeepers, the politicians, and say, not please, sir, would you consider my position, but you will do what I say. You will get us out of the WHO because you work for me. You took an oath of office and violating that office, that oath of office happens to be a crime. And you will do what I say because you are my public servant. And we need to say that by the millions mm -hmm. and by the tens of millions, because that's the only way we're going to get out from under this destruction program. Ab absolutely. And uh, what you're talking about with the WHO and the UN, this is something that the, uh, the John Birch Society has been talking about for 60, 70 years, uh, because well, I think they started in 1958. Get us out of the UN because the UN was always as established for the very purpose of destroying our constitutional Republican form of government and replacing it with a one world system based on Marxism and all these other things. But, you know, we had a great discussion uh, yesterday about this. Most people just don't understand what techno-feudalism is. But these people, the, the Marxists and the, the uh, BLM and the Antifas and all these groups that think that, uh, guess what, you know, Joe Biden or so-and-so is going to support my group because he believes in Marxism or he believes in this or he believes in that. The fact is, is all of us are being used as cannon fodder for a system that ultimately will be in, uh, be totally controlled. It will be a techno-feudalist system where a handful of people will own and control everything. and Including you. They including will own us. and control you. Absolutely. Uh, can I can I share something that happened at our brunch? We went to a, a kind of um, Tucson institution because it turned out that Dan and I are both in Tucson at the moment. And we we were having this very pleasant meal in a very simple uh, place. And um, the couple behind us in the in the booth behind us noticed the wonderful T-shirt that Dan was wearing, which said, impeach everybody. A great T-shirt. <laughs> and he said, oh, yeah. And we started talking about that. And uh, at the end, 
they came around, they left before we did. So we're still at the booth and they come around. They said, well, it was really nice talking to you. And Dan gives them their card, his card. And I give them my website. And these two people who are in their late 70s, and uh, one of them was 80, say, well, you know, um, we're in our 70s and 80, and and it's, you know, we'll just let things take care of itself. And I said, do you have children? Do you have grandchildren? Are they important to you? How hard is it to use your mouse to investigate this, go to the website, look at it, and take action using your freedom mouse? How hard is okay. that? And if you care about your children and grandchildren, then maybe you should do that and share it on social media. And the two of them said, well, you're probably right. <laughs> We're old. And I thought, you selfish pigs. I didn't say that, but I thought it. Because really, that's as much as you care about your children and your grandchildren, it was, it was actually a very uh, sad interaction, I thought, Dan. I don't know how you felt about it. Well, it was, but I hopefully they they were paying enough attention that they'd investigate a little bit. And it, the sad part about it is when you start talking to them about what these people really have planned for us, it, it's so incomprehensible for most people to even try to, to fathom the kind of evil that would do these sorts of things. But guess what, folks? It's there, and it's happening, and you better wake up, and you better be willing to stick your neck out. And I, I told them, I said, you know, think about it. You don't have anything to lose. Why don't you do, you know, you, you're uh, 80 years old, 78, 80 years old. Why don't you do what you need to do? Because the fact is uh, you need to tell people what's going on, and you need to be part of the solution and not just part of the problem. Yeah, this is uh, Prevent Genocide 2030. Thumper, thank you. Uh, uh, Thumper, put uh, your website up on the screen now. And this is, you're, you're talking to people all over the world, aren't you, Dr. Exactly. Rima? And if you, if you click on Take Action, Thumper, uh, if you click on that button at the top, uh, on the menu, you'll see that we have actions for people all over the world, and we have, mm -hmm. scroll down just a little bit, and you'll see that for countries that are not uh, yet actively uh, set up on the, on the website for people to take action, we have a generic letter that people can send to their representatives saying, get us out of here. We also have videos, we have memes, we have music, because we have to touch people at the heart in order to change behavior. Information doesn't change behavior. What changes behavior is touching people at the heart. And this is true for evil as well as for good, by the way. Juliet, I'm sure you can uh, you can uh, uh, substantiate for us that behavior is changed through fear and trauma in a very powerful way, as well as through uh, life-affirming things. So when music touches people, when laughter touches people, that percolates upward to the brain, and that changes behavior mm -hmm. in a positive, um, uh, forward-moving way. But you can use the same principles for evil, and you you were exposed to that 
to change the entire structure of your perceptual reality, yes? Yes, and and uh, I had the option of making it stop by How surrendering you, my soul. By surrendering mm -hmm. your soul. Can you tell us what, what that meant to you as, uh, as a person, as a child, being offered that choice? I, I, it's really important for people to understand that. Well, it's it's interesting to me looking back, even as a six-year-old, seven-year-old, eight-year-old, I knew I had a soul. I knew it was mine. I knew it was my connection to God. I was always trying to find ways of communicating with God. I had a big thing about flagpoles, which I write about in my book, but but uh, that I knew that, even though everyone was telling me that wasn't true. You know, it's... it's uh, just cooperate. Um, there is a procedure for giving up your soul, and I'm not gonna not gonna talk about it because it's a form of black mass. But you have to voluntarily participate, and I never did. And and uh, but I think as soon as you gave up your soul, you were rewarded. So you got scholarships, cars sent to top universities, um, and promised a. a sheer line to success with all the glitz and glamour and that all these people that have no talent and no brains and are are setting foreign policy and starring in movies and dancing at Super Bowls and all this stuff, they they gave up their souls. So they're all, they're already enslaved. And um I wasn't gonna do that. So I well paid the price. You you did pay the price, Julia, but um, I, I think Dr. Rima would love to hear about some of your efforts when you went to Russia to try to help them with their medical uh, with their medical system. Uh, clear back before the fall of the Soviet Union, you were actually there for a year or so before it fell, but uh, you saw the whole dissolution process happen there. And uh, as a result, your angels over Moscow and your, uh, your angel coalition and the things that you did because of your background uh, in MKUltra, maybe talk a little about that. Yeah, it's, it's compressing many, many years and a whole lot of stuff in a short time. But uh, I was invited. I was practicing... I'm 74, so I'm no spring chicken. And um, I was practicing in, uh, I had a top-notch practice. Radi I'm a radiologist, actually, not a pediatrician. Um, but I was an ultrasound specialist and doing ultrasound research, had a technical development company in Seattle in the area era of the rising Microsoft and rising Adobe, rising Costco, um, Starbucks coffee. It was it was the startup city and I was in it and part of that part of that mix. And uh, at about that time, Jeffrey Epstein even offered me a job. So um, it, it, it was a. And right in the middle of that, I was invited to go to Russia and uh, to help. It was the fall of the Iron Curtain, so it was 1990. And uh, they, they were bringing the first group of American citizens to meet with Russian citizens to begin a, an exchange of information on a, on a personal level to start improving the healthcare system of Russia. And... Um, uh, I went with 150 other Americans from 
entertainment to government to, and also with the man, um, Oh, Marx, who, who'd written the book on uh, the Church Commission and MKUltra and all that. And I heard him talk and I made nothing. It, it didn't click. It, it didn't have any connection to me <laughs> as far as I was concerned. But um, uh, I was the first American doctor into the maternity hospitals in Russia and Ukraine and um, couldn't couldn't go back, couldn't leave it alone, couldn't um, couldn't stop being involved and, and got more and more involved. And to make a long story short, after a while, I realized that children were disappearing from the hospitals. In fact, a third of the children were being given up at birth. And these children went into institutions or went who knows where. And um, this was a third of all Russian children being born and Ukrainian children. And uh, this was still the Soviet Union. And so I began tracing out where these children were going, found they were going into this, this archaic system of orphanages. And then in Russia, there were like 800,000 children growing up in institutions who, uh, as time went by, would just disappear over time. And by the time they reached 17, basically they were... They were um, picked off. Um, they were taken away. Uh, I discovered that in person when I was delivering um, coats during the middle of winter to this orphanage up on the Finnish border. And we had all these coats with girls' names on them and boys' names on them. And I took them in the middle of winter in this god-awful bus and, and got up there to this little village of Sfirstroy and found out that all of the girls were missing which meant that all the teenage girls that had been there the summer when I was there the summer before, when I came to deliver the coats, they were gone. And they wouldn't tell me where they'd gone at first, but eventually I got it out of the kids that buses were coming and taking the girls to Finland. And uh, they were going on a holiday and they never came back. So I got on a bus and followed the bus and uh, tracked tracked its progress up to the Kolo Peninsula and then took a bus from Murmansk to Kirkenes, Murmansk in Russia. And then it took a, there was a four hour bus ride to Kirkenes, Norway. And in that process discovered that the buses were used as brothels and that men would get on the bus, rape the children and the bus would just keep going. And uh, when I got to the police in Kirkenes, they confirmed that, that yeah, they found a lot of a lot of children, but the children were all dead. So um, the police, I, I guess I was, I, I just walked in and started asking about about the, the children on the Russian buses. And the, I think I surprised the desk sergeant so much. He was very cooperative. And he showed me a drawer full of Polaroid pictures of children's faces, but they were all dead. And he said, see if you can find your, your girls in here. And it it rattled me so much I I couldn't couldn't I I had to leave, and when I came back the next day, of course they denied that the pictures existed, but it it triggered something in me seeing the dead children and the dead children's faces and the fact that they'd been obviously sexually abused and it just it set me on this memory track. It was almost like a like a that madness that I'd been afraid of before when I'd first gone to psychiatrists and we'd kind of, you know, tamped it down so that I just kept it repressed, but that did it. I mean, seeing the, seeing the faces of the children with the 
big black eyes and the, and the, uh, it just brought it all back to me. So, uh, I came back to Seattle and was having all kinds of, of, uh, bizarre dreams and, and, um, visions coming up and it, it took another 15 years of, of working and dredging and, you know, trying to get, get it in order and approaching people in my family and trying to get them to tell me what was going on, but getting clues along the way, like they all had uh, exorbitant gifts from German prisoners of war. So um, if you really think about that, why would, why would people at Nuremberg who are prosecuting these Germans be getting gifts? I mean, they, they included painted portraits and uh, uh, jewelry and, you know, very expensive stuff. And, and uh, no, these were gifts of gratitude for getting them to the United States and getting them uh, new identities and getting them into positions of power in universities and, and uh, clinics and hospitals where they've been tortured and, and um, tried to take the, the souls of children. And the Nazis were very obsessed with taking souls. Yes. So, um, like... It's interesting. You read the the first four verses of of um, what's the last book of the Bible? Well, Revelation. Sorry, Revelation. <laughs> but uh, they talk about the the seed of Satan is Pergamon, and um, the Germans took that very seriously. And in the 1930s, they went to Pergamon, which is in Turkey. They took the whole thing. They took ancient Pergamon, the Temple of Zeus. Every every structure, and they took it to Berlin, where it still is, and uh, used it in in rituals and and uh, trying to you know use the power of Satan. So they were obsessed with this, and that carried on into the MK Ultra programs, and we're seeing the results of it today. I mean, what we're seeing is is satanic, and the seven mountains of culture, which is how Satan tempted Christ. Now this, this is, I was raised in the church of Satan. So, so this is what they were. Our reward came from the seven mountains of culture, which were entertainment, government, um, art, music, um, all the things that, that, that make human life glorious and where the rewards come from. It's all Satan. And, uh, that's, well, that's it's all Satan, or it can be turned to the service of that principle. Yes, of course, and, and mm -hmm. that's that's our weaknesses. Those are our temptations. That's that's where uh, humanity How did you has... break free, Juliet. How did you manage to to extricate yourself? I think largely it was being in Russia for twenty years. I mean, I was working there from. But at seventeen, you said, "No, I'm going on a different mm -hmm. path." I went out of there. I, I realized that I my options were death or give up my soul or become a whore for the CIA. And I understood that very clearly. And uh, so I took the third option, which was get out of there. And I escaped from Monterey, California, out of this enclave called Murphy's Hot Springs, which is now a, oh, you've probably heard of it. It's Esalen. yes. Yes, yes. Originally, back in the 60s, that was called Murphy's Hot Springs. And it was just a barn and a hot springs and a lot of barbed wire and cornfields. But they would fly the record executives and uh, 
that's who I interacted with and have the bands playing and then girls like me dancing around in little mini skirts and, and we were the party favors. And so I escaped from there by stealing a car and drove to Oregon. And from there, I got on a bus and went to the University of Washington, where high school teachers from my high school had helped me get in early. I was only 17, but I got accepted early. So people knew that things weren't right in my life, but um, and I did get help. But no, nobody understood the scope of it, and people don't understand the scope of it now. Because we're seeing, and, and the only reason I really came out, and, and it was a huge effort to get up at the Red Pill Expo a year and a half ago with Dan's help and Ed Griffin's help and, and tell this story because, uh, you know, it's, it's, I considered it a damning story about me. Other people didn't. People have been very encouraging. Mm-hmm. But I, I certainly had no advantage to it. I just see it happening. I just see the the craziness. There is no man. There is no woman. There is no light. There is no dark. There's no evil. There's no good. And and as this mantra, which is what they they would tie me to a wheel, spin the wheel, and then people around the outside would chant this mantra. And and the end of it, as you're going faster and faster and faster until you're supposed to like let your soul go. The final words are that there's only green. And green, <laughs> green is the color mm-hmm. of total human annihilation, the end of all existence uh, of humanity. And that's when you're supposed to release your soul into oblivion. And uh, so that's where the green agenda comes from. All this green sustainability, it sounds really nice, like you say, but it's got nothing to do with chlorophyll. It's all about the obliteration of the human consciousness. And the the um, literally the obliteration of the human race as we know it, uh, and and that's what's uh, such a such an important thing for people to realize that MK Ultra, UN Agenda Twenty One, UN Agenda Twenty Thirty, the World Health Organization, all these dots they all connect, <laughs> and they all connect in a commonality of destroying most of the human race and what's left dehumanizing it and uh, through AI and transhumanism, literally creating a new species. And this is what Dr. Rima, this is what this lady told her 20 years ago when uh, Dr. Rima, you were still kind of uh, uh, innocent about what was going on. That really started your epiphany, didn't it? Well, I have always been, uh, shall we say, outside the mainstream consensus reality. I was a doctor practicing medicine without using any pharmaceuticals. I was a psychiatrist practicing without any pharmaceuticals. So that tells you that I don't see things the way other people do very Mm -hmm. often. and I was a freedom fighter and I was a social justice fighter. I've been getting thrown out of organizations since I was 14 years old for raising <laughs> questions that that people didn't really want me to raise um, and involved in social justice activism like um, the the thrust for um, racial equality and stuff like that. Uh, so I've I've been 
trying to make things right for a long time. And what I saw when I began looking into what this patient of mine had opened for me, this can of particularly hideous, fat, juicy, well-fed, well-organized worms, what I saw was that these were not separate issues. These were connected at a central control system that was intentionally creating and perpetuating the destruction of a cohesive human society and cohesive human individuals. The Rockefeller Foundation and all their their friends, and we have to remember that the guy who introduced eugenics to Germany, who set up the Kaiser Wilhelm Institutes in Munich and Berlin for the scientific study of eugenics, was John D. Rockefeller Sr. and Jr., the guys, Sr. Mm -hmm. and Jr., and their descendants, David Rockefeller, John D. Uh, Rockefeller III, who, by the way, in 1951, which I think is well after the Second War ended, if I remember correctly. Mm -hmm. In 19, yeah, in 1951, Alan Dulles of the CIA mm -hmm. and John T. Rockefeller III created the Population Council to move the the ideals of eugenics forward. These people have been intending this and using all the money in the world and all the connections and creating the connections, they've been intending this dehumanization and this, if you will, um, generalization of the MK Ultra horrors and beyond for a very long time. And when they didn't have the science to bring it about, they directed the development of those sciences so that they would have the transhumanist potential so that Yuval Harari could say correctly, we are the last generation of human beings, meaning you will be destroyed and we'll be, we will be elevated to what we have insanely conceived as godlike status and you will serve us at our pleasure. All you have to do, folks, is read the first three chapters of Brave New World, which you can read free online by going to aljushuxley.com. Just read the first three chapters because everything that they wanted, everything that they intended is included, explic explicated, and laid out there, and it's what they're offering us now. It's what they're offering us now. You take the death shot. Yeah, it'll kill a lot of us, but it'll change your genes. It'll reduce your ability to replicate. It'll make sure that you are entirely dependent on their control mechanisms. And if mm -hmm. they want you to die, they can turn you off. If they want you to live, they can sustain you. That's what your complicity that's what your passivity, that's what your acquiescence is buying you. And you can't, I mean, to me, there's no choice. You, Juliet, had a choice at 17. You said, I'm not living this life. I'm getting on a bus. I'm stealing a car. I'm getting the hell out of here because I will not be destroyed in this way. Well, we all have that choice to one extent or another if we choose to see that we have the choice. Would you, would you? folks agree or disagree? Oh, with absolutely. Incidentally, uh, Dr. Rima, when we were in that uh, restaurant yesterday and we had the two uh, 
the lady and gentleman that came and visited with us after uh, after they had overheard some of the things we were talking about, it's it is absolutely amazing to me how frightening it is to people to uh, talk about the truth. I mean, it is uh, they're they're in la la land and. Frankly, they want to believe what they want to believe, and if if you bring these things to them, a lot of them uh, just through cognitive dissonance just refuse to hear it. And that's I don't know about what you. we saw. I don't know about you, but I don't have a lot of friends left. <laughs> <laughs> I I have to admit I've got a lot of friends, which is pretty amazing. But uh, part of that is uh, most of my friends now are like you. They're people that are. Fully awake, not woke, fully awake. Yeah, I lost all my friends arguing against the vaccine, saying, are you going to take that? Are you completely insane? Giving them the information, giving them the data, talking about, I mean, in the 70s, when I was in medical school, they were doing the research on mRNA and, and determining that it was a disaster and trying to do, you know, vaccines for coronavirus. You couldn't do it. They, they mutated they too fast. So it, it was pointless and people didn't die of colds. So they, they stopped it, but couldn't talk to them. Mm-hmm. So I lost uh, 90% of the people I was enjoying lunch with. Yes. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. Um, it's interesting. I had um, a dog friend. She and I would visit because I could take my dogs to her house and the the dogs would visit and we would visit and she was actually the most boring person I've ever spent time with, but I might've had a dog friend and her sister and brother-in-law and niece and so on lived nearby. And she spent a lot of time with them and they were all jabbed. And I noticed that whenever I was visiting with her in her house, I would become ill. And I said, Mm -hmm. I can no longer, um, see you or bring the dogs together because being with you contaminates me you're contaminated by your uh your relationship and your your spending time with these well-jabbed people and of course she thought i was insane um and that may be true but that's separate from being right (laughs) i was right and that that was what turned me on to the concept of shedding. And then, of course, we all discovered that these were intended to be contagious vaccines or jabs, uh, Mm -hmm. pseudo vaccines, and that DARPA had been funding the research for well over a decade specifically for contagious injections so that the next person becomes contaminated by what the first person has been injected with and so on and so on, Uh, which leads me to my quest to find a way to determine what's in people. Self-assembling nanotechnology is something uh, mammals have never encountered before and to remove it from people effectively. And I have actually uh, devised a, an experimental protocol to look at the uh, possibility of doing that. And we need to get that funded and up and going pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, but these, we have entered into an era of unthinkable realities, and we damn well better start thinking about them and tackling them head on, or there will be nothing left to protect and defend. That's right. That's right. Well, 
Julia, you've, you've come to exactly the same conclusions as Dr. Rima. I, you know, because we're right. <laughs> well, yeah, that's exactly. kind of the point of all this. When you start connecting the dots, they all connect. Every single time, all the dots connect. And uh, it, it's difficult for a lot of people to conceive this kind of evil, but it doesn't mean that it isn't there. It just means that most people don't recognize it. That's really important. A long time ago, I was trying to understand the nature of evil. I, it, I could not understand the allure and the fascination and the power that evil can have on people who think of themselves as good people and who might even have uh, religious or ethical standards that they think controls their life, and yet they become woven into evil and perpetrated. And uh, I, I really was very puzzled by that. Maybe it's obvious to other people, but it wasn't obvious to me. So I started studying evil, which was very unpleasant. And one day I walked down my long driveway to my mailbox and there was a book there with a, uh, in a, an envelope with an address, a return address in Kamloops, British Columbia, a beautiful town in which I had been actually. I didn't know anybody there. I was just a tourist and went through it. But anyway, the, this book was called Ponerology, P-O-N-E-R-O-L-O-G-Y, Ponerology, The Study of Evil. And I thought, well, this is odd. How come somebody sent me a book called Ponerology? Mm. I read it. It was a very difficult book to read because it had been uh, written in, in Russian and destroyed and then rewritten in Czech and destroyed and then rewritten in German and destroyed and then rewritten in English. The guy had obviously had a very hard time getting his information out. But what he said fundamentally was this, and it changed my life, my understanding. Psychopaths are invisible to normal people because a psychopath, as we now know, has no attachment to anything, neither chick nor child, nor uh, uh, a friend, nor, mm -hmm. nor animal, nothing. They have no attachment to anything except their own perceived well-being their own perceived interest. And therefore, they don't care what happens to their child. They, as, as the people who exposed you to true evil and indescribable uh, uh, wrongness, they have no sense of affiliation to nature, nation or religion or group or uh, ethnic uh, uh, unit or anything else. And so they can violate everything and everyone. But what they become good at is providing you with a mirror and you see what you mm. need. Now, I found this out in a most personal way after 27 years of marriage by learning by accident that my husband, my first husband, whom everybody loved, he was a college professor, he was kind, he was loving, he was funny, he was smart, he was this, he had an IQ of 180, he was all these wonderful things, PhD, biochemistry, yes. He was a psychopath, he was a perfect psychopath, and I never saw him. What I saw was the mirror of what he understood that I needed to see. And I discovered that this wonderful, gentle, kind, blah, 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 human being was luring children and women 
into snuff films and pornography for the mafia with a totally secret life, with an entirely wow. secret address and financial life. And I was totally unaware and I'm not overwhelmingly stupid, but that's how invisible a psychopath can be. And these people are well-trained, well-placed and well-protected so that we never see them. We never understand who and what they are because we project what we think makes sense. Mm -hmm. They are not, in my view, they are not fully human because they have given away any capacity to attach to anyone or anything. And that is one of our most fundamental human characteristics. If you are attached to nothing, you can do anything. That's a key to what Juliet talks about, the soul. And that's why MKUltra was so successful in creating all these political elite leaders. They used their programs to accelerate the uh, those who are willing to give up their soul and put them through a training program and then ultimately put them in position of power. Please. Uh, talk about that, Juliet. Well, I was going to say that the the psychopaths that I know, and the psychopaths that came out of this program, and the psychopaths you see running government, they consider money good, gold is good, blitz is good, the big car is good, fame is good. So all the things in those seven mountains of culture that that the Satanic Bible talks about. I mean, you get all that. You get it. And if you keep your soul, you may be poor, you may be, you know, beaten on, you may have to exile yourself to another country like Russia, but, but uh, uh, I don't care about the gold. So there's, there's the difference. I, I, I think that uh, that's what they see. If, if they are rewarded, they're covered with, with gold and accolades and uh, then, then they're good people. That's in their view, they are the best people. So they are the ones that deserve to live, whereas we don't. We're cockroaches. Yeah, we're we're the useless eaters because we don't have the glitz, the glamour, the, the and in order to get the glitz and the glamour and the seeing at the Super Bowl, you have to give up your soul. And your soul is what connects you to God, in my view, and it connects you to other human beings. Right. Humanity. Is what connects you to humanity. And that's why it's so easy for these people to think in terms of getting rid of humanity, because as Dr. Remus says, they're, they're uh, psychopaths. They don't have that connection to humanity. They have a connection to nothing. A sociopath has a connection to a very small number of things or people or ideas or their own kid or something like that or or the the dog, but a sociopath has the the capacity to connect to something, but a psychopath is totally unmoored to anything. There is no love in the life of a psychopath at any level. That should terrify you. These people are placed into really powerful positions and they make decisions. That should scare the crap out of you. And they're given the power to implement. They're given arms. That's my point. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Well, that, that's why uh, you, you ladies are perfect to know and talk to one another 
because you understand this relationship and uh, Julian understands it from having actually been raised in it from the time she was six years old. Uh, well, her whole family was involved. Give a little bit of background on your family, Juliet, because, uh, you know, it's so important in understanding how you were drugged through this system. Well, I come from those those dreaded bloodlines that, that people talk about, the family bloodlines and, and those. I didn't know this until much later, but, um, and my... Um, uncles, my, a lot of my family were in OSS. My um, mother's brother was one of the founders of the NSA, as well as, as uh, one of the 20 founders. And so they were very much into the, the CIA. They were close to the Dulles brothers and who started the MKL program in 1953, illegally, but um, it was officially started. There's acknowledges an illegal program, but they really didn't care. So um, so I have the background for it. And I, and I think that the bloodline connection is why a child on the left of me, a child on the right of me would be killed in, in ritualistic fashion. And I wouldn't be, I'd get smeared with, with blood and, and sexually abused as part of their their ritual, and I always wondered why. Why didn't they just kill me and get it over with? And um, hmm. the way I survived was dissociating. So I'm, I'm sure you'll know, understand what that means. And and uh, so I would be floating above myself, not feeling anything, not not um, emotionally responding. You know, taking shelter in some. So I, I had multiple identities. I would be in one of those. I'd be with with my made up heroes. I'd be having adventures all the while this horror is going on, which I think is part of, I think it's called multiple dissociative, dissociative identity disorder. Although it's the survival mechanism. Um, oh, and it, it, it's induced intentionally because it's so useful to have people be able to switch into one personality state or another or another or another at the the controller's whim yes is that yes and i think it's very useful for developing psychopaths absolutely because when you're in that personality you're a, you are that person and um i struggle with that i still struggle with that i'll, I'll have some memories tucked away but they're with this other person that's in me and and i have to work to get to it sometimes and people that are around me a lot do notice that uh, you know I, I can speak a language in one personality but not in another so that's that's part of the programming but i think i think in that that they were doing that to develop the psychopaths who then make these marvelous liars because you you lie in one personality and you don't even know you've lied when you're in the other personality. I think, I think people need to understand that this, this alteration of self is so profound that, for instance, um, some personalities will need corrective lenses to see and other personalities in the same body will not, which when you think about the the polymerization of the uh, the protein in the in the lens of the eye and why you need corrective lenses and so on, it's pretty wild because it unpolymerizes. Uh, one one personality will need insulin injections in order to survive, and another personality will not 
require insulin injections. These are profound states of mm-hmm. alteration that that most people can't even comprehend we have the capacity for. I mean, you know them well, Juliet, because you lived it, but people have to understand. Yeah, you've got it. You have to understand how very, very deep this um, uh, induction of alteration goes when people are attempting to do this to children. I, I did. That was not to you, Juliet. That was for listeners to understand the profundity of the the rape of of the human being, which is far beyond genital rape. Way beyond. And 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 it, I get so angry when I hear these these uh, people that are trying to normalize pedophilia. That, oh, the child the child wants sex. You know, it's 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 no none of that experience is sexual to a child. It's just brutal brutalization let's focus on yes it's brutalization for purpose whether it's the purpose of the pedophilia's pleasure and sadistic uh uh uh, need or whether it's some other pleasure let's talk about that for a second when i was um coming up and actually i'm older than you are juliet i'm 79 is anybody older than me (laughs) yeah well nobody's older than i am but i'm 79 um the the Kinsey reports oh, on yeah. female sexuality and male sexuality came out and, and everything was okay. And it turned out that babies and, and children were sexual and it was really fine. Well, let's talk about some of the data. Let's talk about the fact that Kinsey, who was a actually had a PhD in entomology, he studied the gall wasp. He had knew nothing about sexuality. But Rockefeller supported Kinsey and the Kinsey Institute and the Kinsey Research in order to destabilize normal values, in order to destabilize the family. That was a way to do it, one of the many. And so he had a group of monsters around the world, especially former Nazis in Germany, who were raping babies as young as two months old. And if the child cried, their scientific data was reported as that being a sign of pleasure on the part of the infant who was being bodily invaded and tortured uh, as as a pedophilia uh, uh, play on the part of these these monsters. And that was reported as kins to Kinsey and accepted by Kinsey as sexual pleasure. This whole transgender thing and the sexualization of children, which is child abuse, whether it's heterosexual or homosexual, in my opinion, this whole thing is based on this fraudulent pseudoscientific nonsense, atrocity. Rockefeller, thank you so much. And we're buying into it and we're allowing our children to be MK ultrafied, if you will. Yeah. Stop it, parents. Stop it, grandparents. Right. Stop it, administrators and teachers. What is the matter with you? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And and they're trying to normalize the most diabolically evil transition evil. of our society. They're they're generalizing mk ultra programming that's what's happening they're generalizing it they're normalizing it you you know well that a few days ago 
the United Nations and WHO wow. said every child should have the right, the human right to an adult sexual partner. Oh my God. It's Excuse me? me? Excuse me, what did you just say? I'm a child and adolescent psychiatrist by training. I'm a psychoanalyst mm -hmm. by additional training. What? What is the matter with you? Well, the matter with you is this is part of the programming to MK ultraize the society as yes. you kill it, as you control it, as you condemn it to a life of absolute servile subhuman status. That's the plan. Do nothing. That's what you're buying. Wow. <laughs> you, you, you are so totally spot on with that. And the, the thing is, is that why are people allowing this? I mean, 10 years ago, if someone had said some of the things they say today, they would have been institutionalized. I mean, this kind of crap, the fact that they're getting away with it is to me the most criminal part of the whole thing. And you're right. And incidentally, Juliet, I honestly, you've got a great friend here uh, that understands MK Ultra, understands the depth of evil that was part of that whole program. Yes, I intend to keep talking with Rima. <laughs> and in in the chat, uh, Juliet, I put my contact information so Perfect. we could we could stay mm -hmm. in touch. And you had already emailed me. Um, it, it is really important. Excuse me, I'm I'm talking over you. I can't stop myself. I have no social judgment. Forgive me. It is really important if your innards are sort of squidgy and you say I, I, that's not right. Open your mouth. Tell your neighbors mm -hmm. and your friends and your children and your your family that you don't think that's right because they need to hear that you don't think it's right because they don't think it's right either. But people are being trained to be compliant and quiet mm -hmm. and obedient more and more and more. If it doesn't feel right, it's probably because it isn't right unless you're a really crazy person, in which case... Your neighbors know you're crazy anyway. They'll ignore you. But if you know something is not right and you say, well, maybe I just won't say anything because I don't want to uh, I don't want to make anybody upset. I don't want to offend anybody. Offend them. If yeah. somebody is doing something wrong, it is not offensive to say that's wrong. Don't do that to that child. You can't do that to me. Speak. You are still more or less a little bit free but you That's, won't be if you don't take your responsibility seriously sorry I, i'm sorry juliet i spoke over you that's all right i wanted to ask you i i think uh there's a lot more to the subliminal stuff coming over the television set than than uh, we're ever allowed to talk about and i notice it after being in russia for 20 years where i basically didn't experience it just like in russia they didn't have chemtrails so when I came back to the United States, my God, what have they done to the sky? And I was hearing all this stuff coming over the television set. And of course, people are saying, oh, you're crazy and all this. No, there there are. And, and I found out later that they sell the space on, on uh, TV by the second. So they can cram these messages in there that are 
completely. So important. Uh, one of the things that I've used as a clinical tool since 1992 is um the technology to allow me to record a vocal sample. Somebody speaks. And just as we get all kinds of information from the electrical activity of the brain, that's called an EEG, or from the electrical activity of the heart, that's called an EKG, or the muscle, an EMG, so the voice reflects and contains a vast array of information about what's present, what's absent, what's a problem, what's functioning normally. So if you take a 30-second recording of the voice, and then you run it through a very simple program called a fast Fourier transform, uh, which is a mathematical program that breaks out the individual frequencies, and you look at what's called a compressed spectral array. You look at the frequency information contained in the voice, you can see a great, great deal of information. Now, one of the, th and then you can treat by giving frequencies and you can actually give the, the impact that um, a molecule of a pharmaceutical, let's say, would have by delivering the frequency of that molecule. And then you don't get the side effects, you just get the benefits. That's a whole nother discussion. So when suddenly we were sending unarmored uh, Humvees to Iraq and they were getting blown up because they weren't properly protected and our bridges were crumbling and our schools were um, uh, unable to provide for children because they didn't have adequate budgets. But suddenly everybody had to throw out their perfectly adequate analog TV and get a digital TV. Mm. And I said to myself, why is that? First of all, I don't have a TV. But I said, why is that? I wonder if this is a control system. I'll bet mm -hmm. you it's a control system. So what we did was some experiments with people who did have digital TVs in their houses. We took oscilloscopes and we measured what was coming off the TV, and we saw some very, very interesting and troublesome frequencies one of which produces a change in behavior to produce irrational altruism. Anything you need, I'll give you anything you'll need, I'll do anything you want. That's programming, frequency programming. And there were some other really disturbing frequencies. So we did voice analyses of a family. It was a grandfather, a grandmother, a mother, a father, and three children, all of whom were uh, people I knew, and I said, I want you to do a vocal profile on each person in the family, and then I want you to watch television for an hour together. I don't care what you watch, but I, all want, I want you all to have uh, the same stimulus, and, and then we'll do another voice recording of each person who has watched the television. And what we found was the same frequencies that were coming off the same behavioral control and physiological control frequencies that were coming off the TV after an hour of watching were now embedded in the voices of all of these people who had not had these frequencies in their voices before the one hour exposure. Now, isn't that interesting? Wow. And and by taking one of these suckers apart, one of these digital TVs, we discovered that they're also listening devices. You remember in um, 1984, 
all of the uh, the televisions or the tele what they used for televisions were all listening devices. Well, guess what, folks? And so, if you have one of these these things plugged in in your house, you think you have private conversations? Not really. Oh, this woman is paranoid. Yeah, but I also have data to back up what I'm saying. As I said again, yeah, maybe I'm crazy, but I'm right. So if you have one of these things in your house and you're watching it, I don't know why you would do that, but you really need to unplug it whenever you're not watching it. You really need to unplug it. I would choose not to watch it. As I said, I don't have a TV in my house specifically because I don't want to be surveilled. And also, I don't want to be impacted by somebody else's definition of what my reality should be. Thanks a lot, but I think I'll skip that. Now, you, 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 uh, you mentioned it, but in 1995, one of the things that happened under the Clinton administration is the Telecommunication Act. And very uh, embedded in that, uh, in that act is where televisions now have the ability, cameras built into them for two-way communication. So they can not only hear you, they can see you. Yes, exactly. And, and you've got a TV in your on. bedroom, don't you, folks? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> not a great idea. Yeah, exactly. So I as I, I don't have a TV, but if you if you choose to have a TV, then unplug it unless mm -hmm. you're using it. Mm -hmm. That seems like a reasonable thing to do. Absolutely. Well, we cannot accept these intrusions into our lives, into our psyches, into our children, into our food. And we can talk about food. We can talk about the chemtrails and the semi-synthetic biology. Juliet, I know you know about that. Uh, we, The more we accept, the less choice we have to reject. Mm -hmm. and, and it's, it's interesting. It's interesting. It, I keep harping on to ad nauseum about the first four chapters of Revelation. But that is that is the message from that, is that tolerance is what destroys civilization. And, and you do what's right, you don't tolerate evil. So the, the message there over and over and over again is you will collapse if you tolerate evil. And within a few hundred years, all of those great cities, all of the cities that were the the wealthiest, the most beautiful, the most cultured cities in the world were dust, and they're dust. And the and, last, last little bit of Pergamon marched off to Berlin, so it, they're gone. They were too in, tolerant. In Isaiah, it says, Woe unto those who call good evil and evil good, who call bitter sweet and sweet bitter. Um, that's exactly right. And I would add, nobody told me I could, but they haven't stopped me from it. I would add, woe unto those who accept what is mislabeled and act as if it doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. I agree. Yes, that's tolerating, you know, tolerating evil. Exactly. Well, we've, we've seen uh, changes. I've seen changes in the personalities of the fully vaccinated. And I really want you ladies to, to uh, talk about that a little bit, but I have. I've seen 
in people who uh, went and got the, the vaccine, their personalities are not the same as they were before they took those jabs. And it isn't a vaccine, it's a, it's a jab. It's a, a DNA, uh, mRNA DNA change agent. It it's isn't a gene a therapy. Yep, absolutely. Uh, the president of Moderna, I believe, uh, said that it was an operating system that could be injected into people's cells to capture the way their systems operated. How much more do you need? They're right out there with it. They are. And the mRNA has been described, like I said, since the 1970s. As, so. a, deadly, as a deadly and bad idea, unless what you want to do is kill people. Now, safe? No, these, these jabs are in no way safe. But effective? Oh, yeah, because they are killing vast numbers of people, and that will accelerate. And turning and, them into batteries, which is an interesting thing. Right, which is a very interesting thing, according to the patents that are public documents, that are public documents. Um, it's There has been a huge change. First of all, the developmental landmarks for children have been downgraded by 20% during the period when people were walking around with diapers on their faces, which children couldn't learn human interaction through and speech. And also children have been isolated from one another. And Fauci maintains that he did not uh, cause the closing of any single school and no one was harmed. Another lie. Uh, by the way, I, I coined the term Fauciism, which means medical tyranny, and I offer it freely to everyone. Um, the, the, the vaxxed, the jabbed, have most assuredly had personality changes. There's, if, you, if you had a measurement for civility, the civility score has dropped dramatically in those who are jabbed. Well, that's not exactly an accident because civility is a mark of empathy and attachment. You feel what the other person might be feeling if you do this or that or the other thing, and you choose to interact in a way that is supportive of that attachment. And that is diminished in a, a, a horrifying way. That and you see it everywhere, and irrationality and road rage and um, lawlessness. These are all, I think, consequences of the genetic changes that are being wrought and the physiological um, uh, inflammation of the nervous system. If you if you have the lining of all the cells inflamed because of the the irritant of the spike protein and the other things that happen in consequence of the jabs you're going to get irrational behavior. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, we talked about this too, is uh, everything, they plan to do everything, change everything that has anything to do with human beings. Now, Kodak's Elementarius, uh, I know that piqued your interest a little bit when we started talking about that yesterday. But that's been in the works since the 19, early 1950s. And uh, one of the Huxleys was the first uh, director of UNESCO. And UNESCO is the one that brought in, incidentally, 
the German guy that was uh, the head of IG Farben, after he was released from prison after the Nuremberg trials, he went to work for uh, Huxley as uh, a director of a new program called Kodak's Elementarius. Fritz Termeer yep. is the guy you're talking about. Now, Fritz yep. Termeer had been, the very interesting, um, he had been the head of a pharmaceutical company that John D. Rockefeller Jr. owned a controlling interest in because he owned controlling interest in pretty much all the pharmaceutical industries. And that has to do with the capture of, of uh, uh, so-called healthcare, which is really illness management. It's not healthcare at all. Um, and Fritz Tremere and a whole bunch of other people were released from their short prison terms for being architects of um, the atrocities. And they went back to work. They got new suits and haircuts. And I guess they got their shoes polished and they went back to work and they had a meeting. Seven of them came together. This is historically documented. And I talk about it in a video called Nutricide, which you can find on YouTube. I don't know why it's still there, but it is. Uh, Nutricide is a term that I coined for using nutrition or food uh, to bring about the deaths of large numbers of people. So Fritz Tremere and these six other guys who had gone to jail for their atrocities, um, got together and they said, well, that didn't work. What else can we do? And then they thought about it. And I guess the food in the prisons wasn't quite as good as they were used to. And they said, ach, the Lieber, it's so simple. Food will take control of the world's food supply. And through that, we will take control of the world, right? And then they went to the new globalist organization called the United Nations, and they said, hey, listen, we think you should take control of the world's food supply. And the United Nations said, yeah, we do too. So tell you what, we'll have WHO and FAO, the Food and Agriculture Organization, create this new thing called Codex Alimentarius, which mm -hmm. means food code. Now, the Austro-Hungarian Empire had a Codex Alimentarius. So the courts could decide what food standards were and they could bring charges against people who adulterated food and stuff like that. The Roman Empire had it. The, the uh, uh, Middle Ages had food codes. This is not an unusual idea. There was only so much sawdust that you could put into flour in, um, in Elizabethan <laughs> England without going to jail if you were a baker. So. They said, okay, that's a good idea, and they made it voluntary. And pretty much nobody was paying any attention to it. And then in 1994, at the Doha meeting, the World Trade Organization was created, and they were the stick. Now, it was still voluntary. All these standards for every aspect of food were still voluntary, but... If you didn't go along with them, then you could be brought to the dispute resolution uh, system of the World Trade Organization. And here's how it worked. Let's say that country Juliet is selling chickens to country Dan and the chickens are cheaper and they're organic and country Dan says, well, that's unfair competition and we don't want organic chickens here because then nobody's buying the chickens that we raise here in Country Dan. So you take Country Juliet to the World Trade Organization 
and let's say you're she's violating country juliet is violating some codex standards and the world trade organization says okay country dan you can have three billion dollars worth of financial uh sanctions with which to punish country juliet but country dan does give a damn about the chickens because who cares country dan is a major competitor with country juliet in let's say steel or automobiles or electronics. And so country Dan gets to apply the $3 billion worth of sanctions to any sector of the economy that country Dan wants. Let's say steel or automobiles or electronics. And country Dan gets to put punitive sanctions on the import and sale of country Juliet's electronics, automobiles, and uh, and steal. Forget the chickens. It was never an issue. Nobody cared. That's how Codex Alimentarius works. And this voluntary system became a financial destruction of the most enormous type. Meanwhile, all the standards were being degraded to make food more and more unsustainably uh, useful to people to stay alive. That was, and driven, by the way, I might say it, I've been to many, many, many Codex Alimentarius meetings all around the world, because when we closed our practice in 2004, my husband and I said, where do we start? It's kind of a big problem. How about we start with food? Because everybody eats. And so we dived into Codex Alimentarius, which I have to say most people had never heard of. And we understood what this was about. It was about weaponizing food and weaponizing the poorest economies in the world to kill them and then moving up the economic ladder to kill lots of other people. And so we warned people about this. And we gave countries model legislation that they could pass. And we gave countries techniques that they could use to protect their food supply and their economy against the World Trade Organization. And those countries that did what we suggested actually prevailed at the dispute resolution level of the World Trade Organization, which is kind of cool. Unfortunately, not many countries did what we said. However, Codex Alimentarius is just one aspect of this evil. And if you solve Codex Alimentarius, you've still got WHO and the UN and the fact that they want you dead. Mm-hmm. Well, in, in Dr. Rima, the, the, the uh, Codex Alimentarius, that, this is where now the, the uh, talk about using insects for protein and vitamins, and ultimately they plan to control everything that goes into a human body so that they can control the human body. It's just that simple. Exactly. Exactly. And by the way, if anybody thinks that, you know, what's so what's so bad about insects? Um, it turns out that they're really, really, really bad for you. And that chitin, which is part of what you get when you're eating insects, chitin is actually highly highly toxic to the human body, pro-inflammatory, and is a trigger for a whole lot of very bad things. You probably don't want to eat the bugs. (laughs) Oh, I love it. I love it. Uh, Juliet, uh, 
again, this goes back, you were involved with MK Ultra. It goes back to, you, you said it to me, MK. Some people say, oh, that's mind control. Wrong, wrong. What is MK Ultra? Well, according to the the program, MK stands for Mein Kampf, and this is this is a program that was in the third part of Mein Kampf. And I haven't read Mein Kampf. I I can't face it, and <laughs> and uh, uh, but that's what it means. And and uh, it was. Um, Mind control in German is Bewusstseinskontrolle or something. It, it isn't. There's no um, M in it. Uh, but um, yeah, I mean, it was a Nazi-based program, and it was uh, highly, highly immersed in the occult, and it was a harnessing of evil. And for some reason, the Dulles brothers thought this was just great. So well, they uh, thought a lot of things were great. Uh, that they used as experiments on you. But we, we talk about Manchurian candidates. This is another product of the whole MK Ultra program are the Manchurian candidates. And literally, your, your understanding and your feel is that uh, most of the elected officials that seem to be the biggest problems that we're dealing with, you believe that a lot of them went through the MK ultra program and they actually uh, are graduates of that program yeah the ones that, the ones that survived and got the got the rewards are the ones that they could control and the ones who gave up their souls and the ones who get, actually sort of graduated from psychopath school so nothing's going to change them they don't have the capacity for changing anymore um, and the reward for these people is gold you know Blitz, glamour, fame, uh, that's all they care about. So, um, yeah, I, definitely, definitely I see it from, from the words that were used, from the, from the rituals that were used, from the history. And, um, and actually, it's interesting. It's getting harder and harder to dig out history. I mean, a few years ago, you could, you could uh, use a search engine and go in and find all kinds of, of information about all kinds of things. And it's getting tighter and tighter and tighter. So we're getting less and less and less information. And um, when I need information, I go on Yandex.ru, which is a Russian search engine. And, mm -hmm. and um, they have limitations too, but they're limit, they're interested in other things. So, so uh, it's still a, a better search engine to use than any of the American search engines. Um, and you can use a VPN to, disguise what country you're in and you can use international VPNs, but it's, it's getting harder and harder to find anything. And clearly AI is tracking whatever you're looking at. So, um, mm -hmm. uh, you, you've, you've made a, a comment uh, to me that, uh, uh, the Russian people are worried that America's losing its soul, that we as human beings and as Americans, that we're losing our souls. Now, you lived in both countries. Uh, you understand both cultures. Uh, tell our listeners what you really mean by that. 
Well, the Russians went through a period where all religion was suppressed. I mean, they couldn't even mention God, and the churches and synagogues fell into ruins, and and there were various purges, and and um, but still, I mean, so you had it was seventy years, so that's what three generations. So you had people grow up, and then their children grew up without any reference to any any uh, spiritual life, other than sort of a, a homegrown um, witchcraft, which they practice widely, and homeopathic style uh, medicine, which was very effective. And they did a lot with massage and chiropractic. And, and um, <clears throat> but as, as soon as, as uh, what was it, 1991, when the Russian constitution was passed, it made it... Uh, not illegal to practice religion. And if it was a religion that had already existed at the time of the revolution, then you were absolutely free to for practice. And spirituality just uh, burst back. So, um, and under the current regime, they built 30,000 rebuilt or built new synagogues and churches and temples. And, and uh, like Kazan has every religion represented in its Kremlin. And, um, so it was something that could not be destroyed. It's something that was not suppressed in the people. And um, they were amazed when Russians started coming to the United States at how unspiritual we were. And now every Russian discussion, if they really want to know how you are, they ask, how, how, how is your soul? You know, how, how are things with your soul? And it's almost a, a probing. They, they probe into your space, and it drives some Americans crazy. I've always liked it. And and you sort of meet on a on a spiritual psychic level, and you agree to certain things in this space. And and uh, maybe some of my MK Ultra background was very useful for this. <laughs> very. <laughs> but um, so I could get along fine without without language. Although surprisingly, I knew quite a bit of Russian. Um, so. I had some classes somewhere along the way, but uh, the spirituality burst out like like wildflowers in a garden, and um, they di they didn't know the procedures, they didn't have the books, they didn't have the the uh, you know the garments, they didn't know anything, but they knew the bells. So every everyone knew where their bells had been buried because when the churches were being destroyed during the revolution, the counter revolution, and the civil war. The people took down the bells and buried them, so they were hidden all over the place. So within a few weeks of the Constitution passing, these bells were like floating out of the ground because the first thing they did was dig up the bells. So, um, in fact, you've got one of my pictures called uh, Galitsyn there, which oh, was uh -huh. the hospital that I was working at in in 1990 in Moscow. The first thing they did. Uh, there was an ancient church there from like the 1200s and it was collapsing and it was in, it had been used as a dog kennel for the KGB, but they knew where the bells were and they dug up the bells and they brought the bells up out of the ground. There was no tower to hang them in. And they, they Jerry rigged a tower so that the bells could start ringing. And um, within five years, there's so many bells in Russia. I mean, that's one of the things I miss the most about living there is bells, 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 bells. Yeah. They ring when they're happy. They ring when they're sad. They ring for good news. They ring for bad news. They, they, uh, all over the city, all the time, it's bells. Oh. So, and you um, remember what I was saying a little bit about frequency, 
those <laughs> those bells provide information emotional information spiritual information physical information they're important because they are uh they are useful to us they are orienting to us and they they give us something that we need so much so that the first thing people did was dig up their bells and, and allow <laughs> allow the bells to reorient us that's a an incredibly powerful reality i mean kids who don't have money to eat walk around with with noise with certain frequencies booming in their heads because that's more important than getting food to them and there's quite a lot of research about wow. what that does and spoke good and bad but we our humanity requires certain things one of them is music the bells are a music of of both healing and restoration that's why they went for them right yep they went right for them and that's also uh dr rima that's why 5g and 6g and all these frequencies are so important to the absolutely. human being absolutely and you know there are more than 25,000 peer-reviewed studies on how very bad pulsed microwave frequencies are for you mm -hmm. 5G 6G how very bad they are and what what powerful weapons they are yep that's why that's been selected as the surveillance system it's not about communication it's about surveillance and that's disruption right. biological psychological spiritual disruption well yes, that's sir. why it was developed the technology was developed by the u.s military as a weapon system as were the the so-called vaccines as were the kill shots they are dod products yep. and yep. every vial of a covid vaccine so-called in the united states is the property of the U.S. military until it's injected into you. And oh, by the way, under U.S. law, and this is true in a great many other countries, if I patent a genetic sequence and it gets into your genes, you are trespassing on my patent and I now own your genes which is a way around the 14th amendment because it's not slavery mm -hmm. it's ownership of your genes not of you as a human being and that is part of what we're looking at we're looking at the ownership of the human genome in humans mm -hmm. yep absolutely and that uh, there is uh court there is law u.s law that uh upholds that because Supreme Court uh, decisions. The Supreme Court decisions, absolutely. Wow. Well, uh, Dr. Reba, let's talk about your program, and then I'm going to uh, give uh, Juliet an opportunity to talk about some of the things she's working on. Talk about PreventGenocide2030.org and some of the things you're doing to try to awaken the world to the reality of what we're in right now and why we've got to stand up and make a difference. PreventGenocide2030.org exists to prevent genocide under 
Agenda 2030. That's why it's there. And it's been created to give you a way to pound upon your officials, your elected officials who are the gatekeepers to whether or not your country remains in WHO and the United Nations. I don't care what they believe. I don't care how corrupt they are. I assume they're all scum. Otherwise, they wouldn't have survived in the political arena and been placed where they are. I don't care about persuading them. I simply care about compelling them to do what I want them to do, which is get my country out of WHO. And this is an international site. If your country isn't there, reach out to us, contact us. We'll work with you to give you the tools and techniques you need to pound upon your elected officials so that the very simple process of having your head of state write a letter saying, we're not in your club anymore, because that's all it takes, can be enacted. Getting the letter written is hard. The letter's very simple. And there's a huge amount of information there. There are videos, there are substacks, there are articles, there are documents from uh, from the, the bad guys. Uh, all the substantiation is there that you need. But fundamentally, the most important thing is to use your freedom mouse to click and take action to flood your officials with enough powerful demand to raise the political will to the point where they understand that if they don't do this, the entire system is going to crumble because we will not participate any longer. And that's how these huge political changes happen. And it works. It simply yeah, it works. works if enough of us speak the same message, which is, don't you dare do this to me. Get me out of WHO <laughs> now. Well, and people wake up. They want your life. They want the lives of your children, of your grandchildren. They want the lives of the human species. They want to control everything. It's not that it's just kind of important. It is survival for the human race. That's what we're talking about. If that doesn't fire you up, I don't know what will. And uh, Dr. Rima, you're doing, you're actually having uh, calls uh, five days a week where you're doing, uh, getting people together to talk about this. Is there a way that they can learn more about that? Yes, six days a week, actually, Monday through Saturday. Um, my email is dr. R-I-M-A at naturalsolutionsfoundation.com, or you can go to Prevent Genocide 2030 and use the comments section uh, and reach out to me. But this is those meetings are not about information sharing primarily. They're about choosing and deploying tactics to get us out of WHO. So this is an action center. If you're ready to, to join the action, those are the meetings that I, I invite you to. Thank you so much for mentioning that. Yeah, well, and they are. They're about doing something. So if you're a little bit weak in the knees, go to these meetings and you'll learn how you can actually be part of a solution because there are people there that will talk about what you can do. Yes. And we Raymond. need volunteers. And I have a three o'clock obligation 
and I need to leave. Okay, I'm so well, sorry. And my dogs are crazed at the moment. Thank you so much. You've got, I, I see you've got a beautiful uh, Belgian shepherd there. I have uh, two, German, shepherd. two shepherds. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I saw the black one. That's uh, that's a Belgian, right? No, no, they're, they're not my was. I have two, uh, two German line German shepherds oh. and they're, they're beautiful. And they the little one, the little black one terrorizes the big male. Go figure. <laughs> well, that's the way it always works. Uh, Juliet, uh, we're out of time, but I want to mention the fact that you've written three wonderful books. Sparky, Surviving Sex Magic was your first book. You wrote a second book, Angels Over in Moscow, talking about the Angel Coalition and getting uh, people out of the human trafficking regime. And then the third one is Moscow Traffic, and that's actually a novel. That's very recent. Dr. Rima, thank you. Thank you uh, so much. You're a lovely lady, and I sure enjoyed uh, the opportunity. You'll be back, I hope. I hope so. <laughs> thank you. All righty. Bye-bye. Um, Juliet, uh, your, your last book, Moscow Traffic, uh, that's a novel, and uh, that just came out uh, this winter, didn't it? It's coming out in December, actually. It's oh, so not, it isn't out yet. Okay. No, it's still not out yet. And okay. I wrote it as a novel, even though everything in it is true, because uh, there's just no way to present Russian life, Russian crime. You know, the, you got the history of, of what's happening in, in Russia in there. So, um, and it's a okay. good read. <laughs> well, and you are Can working you the, on... You are working on an American version of the Angel Coalition as well, correct? Yes, yes. Everything we did in Russia, and I, I've talked on it about it on other programs, uh, we can do in the United States, and it's an effective way at a community level and at a high government level of preventing human trafficking and uh, assisting and rescuing victims mm -hmm. of trafficking. Well, and then you have to rehab them. I mean, you have to... Uh, give them an out. Well, and there are more of them every day because there's more human trafficking and slavery today than there was at the peak of what was supposedly the slave trade. Yes. Um, it's worse now than it ever was. All right. Well, Juliet, thank you. You're a wonderful friend. I hope this connection with Dr. Rima turns into a, a lifelong relationship. Oh, uh, it will. You guys are, are both so incredibly intense on getting this information out. So thank you. Well, thank you. All right. Well, I see that uh, pamphlet is ready to go with the campaign show. So um, I will uh, bow out. Thank you again. Join us on Tuesday morning for Connecting the Dots. We're going to be talking about woke society uh, with a new guest. From the lakes of Minnesota to the hills of Tennessee, across the plains of Texas, oh, from sea to shining sea, from Detroit down to Houston, and New York to LA, where there's pride in every American heart, and it's time we stand and say.
There ain't no doubt. 